Good morning. Yes, isn't relationships, aren't relationships awkward? Um, I think most of us can relate to those moments. Um, and if you're probably an awkward introvert like me, that's pretty much every day of your life. So um, it's pretty much what any day for me is like. Um, so welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. Today we're going to continue a series that we started uh, at the beginning of this month called What Happy Couples Know. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was actually reading the news and I saw... Uh, the story of a four-year-old kid at Beefo Brady's in Melbourne, Florida. Um, as a four-year-old kid, he'd gotten a little bit of money, and there in the claw machine was a stuffed minion. And he really wanted that stuffed minion. So the kid tried and discovered what all of us who've lived on planet Earth have learned the hard way, is that those claw machines are absolutely positively rigged, and you cannot win. And so this kid uh, cannot get this minion, but wants it. And his parents aren't necessarily paying attention. They're enjoying the wonderful meal, I'm sure, provided by Beef O'Brady's. And lo and behold, the kid decides to crawl into the claw machine to extract and to bring out his own personal minion friend. The kid gets in, this four-year-old little boy crawls into the machine and then gets stuck. 911 is called, the Titusville County Police uh, Fire Department shows up, and they have to extract this young boy out of the claw machine. And I was reading the story thinking about the series because this series is all around how do we, not just in our marriage relationships, but in relationships in general, what, what do happy couples know? What do they understand that's essential for a relationship that's filled with better decisions and fewer regrets? And as I was reading uh, this kind of humorous story and the viral video that was going on around it, it hit me that, you know what, desires, these kind of driving impulses that we have, um, just like relationships, they can kind of lead us to some weird places, don't they? They can lead us to strange places where we don't even recognize ourselves anymore. We find ourselves doing things, saying things, and buying in and believing things that in the end uh, rob us. And uh, I think that what happy couples know is what that four-year-old boy experiences, that sometimes desires can take you into dark and weird places. And that what happy couples know is that there is attention, and that unless you're wise about it, unless you understand the danger that can come with it, you will end up in weird places. And today I want to talk about one of the weird places that relationships can take you to. And I want to do so by looking at an interaction Jesus has with a lady and a conversation that unfolds. And here's the thing, today's message is a little different in that a lot of times the way I kind of press into this time that we have together is I want to give you things that you can walk out and do differently today. Um, I hear when you swing by starting point, some of you, that's the, the comments you make. You're like, look, I'm not even sure if I believe the stuff you believe, but it makes my life different. I treated my wife differently today. My relationship with my adult kids is growing because of the words you said and what I did with it. I don't believe what you believe. It's changing my life. And that's, I really sincerely believe that what we teach, what comes from the Bible, really has the power to transform a life because of where it comes from. But today, I, instead of giving you a lot of doing, I just want to engage you and tell you on the front end as a disclaimer, I'm going to be pressing into what happy couples know. And the key word is on the knowing. It's the understanding. But here's the thing. Don't discount the knowledge. This knowledge, this understanding has the power to shift and to transform and to move you into better relationships. Oftentimes, the knowing is the invisible but more important part behind the doing. And today is one of those examples and one of those 
kind of opportunities. Uh, when Jason welcomed, he told you that we have an app that's something we've created for you. Uh, you can download it for free. Um, if you did download it or you already have it downloaded, when you click on message notes, you'll find that the section of scripture is already preloaded for you today. I'm going to be in a passage uh, in a book called John. And uh, can I get set the backdrop of John, then I'll press into chapter four where we're going to be today. John is the fourth biography on the life of Jesus. That in the New Testament, the, the Bible as a whole is made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the New Testament centers around the life and the message and the mission of Jesus in the church that started out of that. The first four books of the New Testament are biographies about Jesus. Specifically, uh, the first three are very similar to one another. They're written all roughly in the same time frame, and um, they all have different audiences in mind. John, the fourth biography, is a unique biography. It's written last. And the reason that's important is because the first three um, biographies on the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, were already circulating in the ancient Roman world. <clears throat> John is a young man when he starts following Jesus. He had a very special relationship with Jesus, like, almost like a, a father-son, little big brother, little brother, because he was the youngest when he started following him. And so because of that, John outlives all the other um, followers of Jesus, he has a special relationship with Jesus, and he's lived the longest. And so what he does towards the end of his life is he surveys the, the content, the biographies, the, the books that have been written about Jesus and his message and his teachings, and he realizes that there's some gaps, there's some holes, and that when he passes away, unless he writes about it, those gaps, those holes will stay empty. And so John sets out to record a perspective about Christianity that was primarily written to a very vast audience, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke had very specific audiences in mind. John writes his so that anyone can read it. John writes it so that the, at this point, the people who have become Christians who are now having kids, the second generation can understand Christianity. He, and he writes it so that they get some of the deeper teachings, some of the things that none of the other biographies grabbed hold of because you didn't need to because all the other followers were alive. They were teaching all this stuff that wasn't in the first three books already. And so John writes this, and one of the people that John introduces us to is this woman in John chapter 4. You don't see her in any of the other books. None of the other biographies talk about her. And John wanted us to have this story because it, it teaches us something, it illustrates something, and it's this profound conversation that Jesus has with a woman that, to, that today, even if you were to travel to the Middle East, would still seem very scandalous. And I love it. Jesus wasn't afraid of the controversy. And so I'm going to set the backdrop. I'm going to do a little bit more explaining than I normally do because this, this conversation, this is riddled and kind of rooted in so many cultural kind of things that you and I don't experience regularly, but they're, they're helpful to wrap your mind around it so that we get to the point of kind of understanding. John chapter 4, I'm going to start with verse 4. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. Samaria is this little region. Um, surrounded by Samaria was the nation of Israel, and that the people of Israel were Jewish, and the Samarians, they were Samaritans, and the Samaria area was kind of... Uh, there was like a rich historical tension and backdrop to Israel and Samaria. Now, because Samaria was kind of smack in the middle of this Israel sandwich, the most direct way to go from the top to the bottom was to cut straight through Samaria. But the, the tension was so intense that a really good Jew would actually forego the shortcut and would take the long route and add days to their journey 
just to avoid this region. It would be like you really, really don't like the Yankees, which is understandable. And so because of that, you avoid the entire state of New York. But the problem with that is when you drive south, you have to be really intentional about driving south if you want to skip the state of New York. And this is where these people are. They're kind of doing the long way around because they just don't even want to breathe the same air these people breathe. It's deep. It's visceral. They hate each other. And it says that Jesus goes through there, and he comes to a town called Sychar. This is a, a town that still exists today. This ancient kind of region would be called, um, if you were kind of Google mapping it, um, it would be Ascar today. It's, it's this modern city, um, a suburb, and in the midst of this place, there is a well there. A well that near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, because he's coming from the north down, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? John writes for us that his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. He was one of them. And the Samaritan woman says, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And John, wanting to make sure we understand what's going on, writes in parentheses, for Jews did not associate with Samaritans. John's wanting us to understand this is like, this is a strange interaction. The problem when we read this is that for us, no, even if you haven't grown up in church, the word Samaritan is kind of a, from a word association standpoint is positive, right? You, you think about nonprofits, you think about the good Samaritan, there are good Samaritan laws. So the word Samaritan doesn't have an instant negative connotation that it did back then. That's why John writes this statement, like four Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Samaritans had a deep negative word association and meaning, a lot of racial tension. And that this woman says, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, why are you talking to me? On top of that, you're a man, I'm a woman, you're not even supposed to talk to me, that's not okay. That's still today, that would still be the way it is. That well that Jesus and this woman have met each other at, it still exists today. If you were to travel to the town that I told you about, you would actually, you could still discover and find the same well that this conversation unfolds at. It's, it's incredible. Um, and around this well, all of this detail can, can cause you to miss the one line in there that screams out at the first century reader or listener. See, in the midst of all the Samaritan, Jew, kind of discord, breakdown, racial tension, history, Man, woman, dynamics, all of that. The one little nuance that can skip us is the fact that it says that it was about noon. So it's really clear Jesus wasn't supposed to be there. That's pretty obvious. But this little line about it was about noon lets us know that she shouldn't have been there either. You see, in this ancient society, um, water was essential Right? We see this today even in South Africa where they're dealing with a water crisis. Water is essential for life, which meant that in the ancient world, your entire world rotated around access to water. It would dictate your entire schedule. And women were the primary response. They were the ones that bore the responsibility in family break and kind of households to be the ones who would gather the water. And they would do it twice a day. Because water is really heavy, and they're carrying these things through buckets and cisterns and these little kind of vases. And so they would go in the morning, and they would go in the evening. And the reason why is because the Middle Eastern sun was cooking down on them during the day. 
If you've ever had to carry something really heavy in the middle of summer, during the middle of the day, you know that's not the ideal time to be outside. And so because of that, women did not go to the well at noon. And a woman never went to the well by herself. Women would oftentimes use this as as kind of a socializing time. It was a, a protection time. They would travel together to the well twice a day. And so there was a company, they would walk, they would talk, they would catch up, and they would talk about what their day held or what their day was going to hold. They would fill up the water, and then they would walk back and do life. But this woman is there by herself at the middle of the day, and everything about this screams, there's, there's more to the story. Which is why Jesus keeps the conversation going. He asks her for water because she's got a bucket and he doesn't. And Jesus says, well, in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. In fact, the well is about 150 150 feet deep even today. And where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Again, I said at the beginning, this, this is a conversation and a story loaded with all these like kind of insider words and cultural backdrops. And one of the words that Jesus used is one of those terms, the idea of living water. I doubt today or this week or next week you will use the phrase living water. Right? It's a strange phrase. But in the ancient world, this word meant something. You see, the, kind of the ancient understanding of water was kind of two separate groups. You had kind of dead water, stagnant water, water that came from wells, water that had been collected from rainfall, the water that was just kind of sitting there. And what happens with water that sits there is that if if you're not being careful, mosquitoes, right, Uh, sickness is growing, like mold, all, all this stuff. So they'd understood, even though they didn't understand microbes and insect life cycles, they knew that sitting water kind of inherently wasn't as healthy for you as this other kind of water that they called living water. And living water was this notion of water that comes from a stream that has a bubbling brook. If most of us buy water and water bottles, right, and they advertise, and they advertise living water, but that's essentially what most of the water bottles we drink. Poland Springs, it's living water. It comes from springs that is pumped out of the ground, and they're kind of fill these water bottles up. And, And this is what is the ideal water. This is what you want. If you're given a choice between sitting water and living water, you take living water every time because it's healthier for you. And so Jesus, when he says, I want to give you living water, she's like, wait a second. You know about a spring somewhere? Like, you're a Jew. You're not from here. Are you greater than Jacob who hand dug this well? Like, no, you're not greater than Jacob. When the conversation is unfolding and where you get to verse 15 is where you kind of get this insight of what's going on. This woman is at the well because she's looking for escape. She doesn't want the other women in the community to see her. That's why she's there at noon. She's living with shame. She's living with guilt. She's got all this baggage. She's isolated. She's lonely. 
And when Jesus offers up this idea of living water, what she hears is, oh my goodness, you mean there's, there's a water source no one else knows about? I could go to that water source and I won't have to look at anyone and be reminded of what I've already done. And that's why she's like, tell me where that water is. Because if you really know where some water supply is, then no one else in this region does. Because this, this area of Samaria is famously dry. This is why Jacob digs a well, and that well is still there. It's not because of just the tradition and kind of the history of that's Jacob's well. It's because in a desert region, you protect any source of water. And that's, that well is still present today. And, and so she's like, do you know about a water supply that no one else knows about? Do you know a rock that when you lift it up, water bubbles up? I mean, tell me where that is so I don't have to keep coming back here. Because to come here means I have to leave my house and I could accidentally bump into someone from my town. And you can kind of pick up on it. When you understand what living water means, you understand why she says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here. To draw water. She wants a skate. She wants a way to guarantee that she doesn't have to lock eyes with another human being. Some ways she wants the internet, right? I just, I want to have a safe, distant place to live my life where no one can see it. And Jesus is recognizing something that while the conversation may be centered around the hole in the ground in front of them. What's really going on where Jesus is trying to take this conversation is he recognizes that she has a hole in her life. That there's something missing inside of her. And that that hole is what he's pressing towards. Which is why verse 16 is a little strange. Jesus kind of abruptly changes the conversation. He says hey, go call your husband and come back. And the woman replies, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you have no husband, when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. And what you have said is quite true. And I love her response. We won't press into it, but she basically says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Because what else do you say? Right? I have a six-year-old. This is pretty much how our conversations go down regularly. When you catch her, when you call something out, it's like, over here, have you noticed this? It's the redirect, right? We're really good at the redirect and the misdirects. And this is what this woman tries to do because Jesus has finally shined a light on the one gaping hole in her life. And it's all in front of her. He's like, look, the relationship you're in, the sixth man, he's not even your husband. There was five before this. And all of a sudden, the reason she's at this well at noon becomes apparent. She's living in a society where what she has done would have heaped shame and guilt on her. No man would have talked to her, and no woman would have talked to her. And this woman has lived with isolation, she's lived with loneliness, and she's lived in serial relationships. And here's what's crazy, is this woman's struggle is not typical for the ancient world. The ancient world did not have, as a common way of doing marriage, the idea of, of this notion of romantic love. 
The notion of romantic love as the primary reason people get married is fairly new. It's only been in the last 50 years that it's become culturally kind of the norm. Right? There are still parts in the world today where this notion of romantic love does not make sense to people. That's still not the reason they get married. And yet, this woman, this ancient woman, is dealing and living a very modern lifestyle, which is what makes this so intriguing. And so in the midst of this modern lifestyle, Jesus presses in and asks her questions. And I think it's in this woman's struggle. It's in what this woman has come to believe and what this woman understands and what this woman knows and thinks about relationships that's actually helpful for us. She's not an example. She's an anti-example. But it's worth pressing in. I think she found, this ancient woman finds herself into this very modern predicament because in some ways she had bought some of the same, she had drank the same Kool-Aid that you and I have drank about relationships. And oftentimes we don't even realize that we're drinking it. So what do I mean? Well, one of the things that you grow up hearing, girl or boy, is that there is this idea of a happily ever after. Right? All all those fairy tale stories, they always end the same way. And they lived happily ever after. And then you realize when you get into a relationship that the only way happily ever after ever gets written is in a story. Because many of us don't even make it through our wedding day without an argument or a fight. Because life happens. I always wondered when those storybooks kind of endings. I was like, what did they do? Where did they go? All right. I mean, this idea of happily ever after is something that we have, we grew up with and, and it's infused in everything that we think about romantic love. Our love songs, right? My love, there's only you in my life because I don't have any other friends and you're just my wife, Right? <laughs> My first love, you're every breath that I take, except for the oxygen that my body uses to make, right? I mean, like these songs we sing, I'm forever, it's endless love, it's always, girl, I will climb a mountain for you unless it's a really tall mountain because my legs can't handle that. I will swim deep oceans, but the fact is I'll probably drown about a third of the mile off the coast. But we sing these things, we say these things, we, we declare these things. It's like the highest ideal of love. I will satisfy you. You will never be lonely. I knew I loved you before I met you. I'm like, how is that even possible? <laughs> Unless you are a stalker. And in that case, that's not romantic, that's criminal. But we sing this stuff. We, we call, remember, anybody remember Delilah? We called Delilah back in the day and be like, Delilah, I got to sing this love song out for my boo. Endless love. I know I loved you before I met you. And an alien jumping on planet Earth would be like, these are strange people. But it's what happens. We've grown up in this idea of happily ever after. And what happens is romantic love continues to get held up as the highest ideal and the highest form of love. Which, I would say, romantic love is a good thing. But it's not the only thing. And that it is one form of love, but it is not the form of love. As a Christian, 
the person who has demonstrated the ultimate expression of love, and then the one who comes along to declare it and to capture it in one of the most famous love poems of all time in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, right? Love is patient, love is kind, love does not boast. A chapter that we're going to talk about next week. Both of those guys were single. Jesus, who regardless of where you stand religiously and what you believe about him, many hold him to be the central, defining expression of love. And yet, in his expression of love and his expression of the perfect life, he never dates a single person, yet is completely, fully the holy expression of being human. Paul, who writes a vast majority of the New Testament, who pens that famous love poem from 1 Corinthians 13, single his entire life. We in our culture treat singleness like it is a disease to be cured. And if you're single in this room, you do not need to be ashamed of where you are in your life or the stage that you are in your life. You're in good company. And you don't need someone else to finish you or to fix you. But that's what happens if you grow up with this notion that romantic love is the highest fullest individual expression. Um, Just recently, I came across an article um, in Saudi Arabia this month is the big camel festival. And um, it's a pretty big deal, about 90 miles outside of Saudi Arabia's largest city uh, in this sprawling desert arena is this vast metropolis that has sprung up for this month. And everything is kind of fixated and focused on camels. 300,000 people have shown up so far, and it's only halfway through. They come to drink the camel milk, to inspect the camel fur. But the biggest thing, not, not the camel races, but one of the biggest things is the camel beauty contest, where all the tribes bring their camel, and all the handlers show up, and these camels are pranced in front of this audience, and if your camel, your tribe, that handler, that's your guy, you cheer for him, you applaud for him, because that's your camel. You want everybody to know, that's our camel. And the, the prizes associated with the, the, ra- the races and the beauty contests, they, they get up to like $57 million. I'm, I'm not, uh, like, I'm, I want you to hear me. I am not over-exaggerating this thing. I'm downplaying it because I I want to be believable. But here's what's extraordinary. This year, it's been racked by scandal because it was discovered that 12 of the handlers were using Botox to make their camels more attractive. Because believe it or not, unsightly lines and wrinkles are bad on camels too. Who knew? And handlers were caught Botoxing camels in order to make them look more attractive. And they got caught and they got kicked out, public disgraced. And it is easy to sit there and to laugh and to say, what in the world? But here's the reality. When, 
when those things that are good things become the ultimate things that were never intended to be the ultimate things, and we start to sell our lives out for them and believe that those things are going to fill a hole inside of us that they were never intended to hold, what will happen is you will find yourself Botoxing a camel, crawling into a claw machine, or showing up at a well at noontime so that no one else sees you because you have bought so fully into the lie that that will satisfy me. And instead of owning it when it does not, we double down into it, don't we? It's easy. It's the, my job becomes that thing for me, and we kind of come up with these things, and I'm guilty of this. Well, babe, next week it'll be better. This is a busy season. And a busy season becomes a busy year, and a busy year becomes a busy decade. We justify it, and we rationalize it. I don't have time to read them all, but this past week I was reading people's, I was reading um, comments from applications and, uh, and reports from, uh, from people who'd gotten in wrecks. And to hear them describe what went down in the wreck that they caused is insane. The bush jumped out in front of me. The stationary car hit me. I, I was riding along and this invisible car came out of nowhere, hit me, and then completely disappeared again. I mean, the most ridiculous statements being written down for public record. It's because we have this incredible power as humans to deceive ourselves and to, to not want to see the reality. And this is why Jesus is pressing in. She's there for escape. And what Jesus wants to give is freedom. And escape and freedom are two separate things. And this woman, like many of us, had bought into the lie that someone else out there was responsible for making her happy. That someone out there was responsible for making her whole. That my loneliness will be fixed when I get into that relationship. And if anyone who is married is being honest with you, they will tell you that marriage does not fix loneliness. If anyone's being honest, when you get married, it does not fill those voids inside of you. And yet this woman, that was her life. The first one didn't work out. It must not have been Mr. Right. If I'd gotten Mr. Right, it wouldn't have gone wrong. So the second Mr. Right, he's Mr. Wrong too. Third Mr. Right, he's Mr. Wrong three. And what happens is she finally gets to five, she's done, and she's not even sure she wants to be married anymore. So now she's moved on to six, because maybe that was the problem, getting married. And she's going through this cycle and this loop, thinking that the next one is going to fix her. The next one's going to satisfy her. The next one's going to fill her. And yet, in the very pursuit of what she's trying to get rid of, in the very pursuit of what she's trying to avoid, her loneliness and that hole, she is standing at a well in the middle of the day by herself. Which is what happens when we sell out for these things. That relationships, these desires in our relationships, can take us to weird places. And so what does it look like to go to the right place? In our kind of short time together, kind of to wrap it up, I'm going to give you a little bit of a helpful framework. Again, recognizing that a lot of what I wanted to do today was introduce you in a way of thinking. I think awareness is like 80% of this thing. But there's, um, I want to use uh, some letters to kind of help us. There are relationships that are framed that look like the letter A. 
Okay, letter A comes together, right? These two little things, they prop up against each other. And what happens is two, two people kind of, they come into a relationship together, and then there's this complete kind of enmeshment, emergement. They, two become one in a completely unhealthy way. And what happens is that these two individuals kind of both come into this thing, at least one does, thinking that the other one is going to satisfy them. And I'm going to prop up my life. I'm going to prop up who I am by leaning fully on them. My loneliness will be satisfied. My sadness will be filled. They're going to make me happy. And it's all about me. And we is just a means to an end to make me happy. And that, that A-frame kind of relationship is marked by dependency. And this Jerry Maguire line, you complete me. Right? Which is not a romantic line. It's a cry and a desperation of someone who is not emotionally healthy. Because it is not fair to put on someone else the weight of them having to complete you. If someone says, you complete me to you, you say, I have some counselors I want to recommend you to. <laughs> because you are not going to be satisfied with what you get when you hook up with this thing. Early in our dating relationship, I looked at Jenny and said, I love you. I desire to spend the rest of my life with you. I think you're an incredible woman. And I want to convince you I can be an incredible man. But here's the thing I need you to know. I will not satisfy all your needs. I will not make you feel whole. I will not fix those moments of loneliness that you feel deep inside your soul. I will leverage all of my life and I will leverage it all for your good. But you have to realize that I, I can't complete you. I never will complete you. And if you're okay with that, then I think we can have something really, really, really good. And I need you to know, I don't expect you're going to complete me either. I don't expect that you're going to satisfy every desire in my heart and my soul. I don't expect that every conversation we have, we're going to feel like we're on the same page. I don't have those expectations for us. And maybe that doesn't sound romantic. You complete me sounds far more romantic because it makes a better song. It's not really good song to be like, girl, we're going to have a really good thing as long as you understand that I can't complete you. I can't fulfill you. I can't satisfy you like you think I can. Right? That's not going to break the top 40. Never. But it's true. But what happens is we get fed these songs and these lies of happily ever after, and then we get into these relationships, and we're not happily ever after. And what happens? We eat, pray, love out the door. I'm not fulfilled. I'm not satisfied. He didn't complete me. I'm going to move on to the next thing. The next thing you're living in India, walking around, eating weird food, convinced that's going to, that's going to fill you. And it's funny because all of what I'm saying is exactly true. This is this A-frame way of doing relationships. And what happens is if you, if you don't move out of that, A eventually becomes the letter H. And the letter H is where these two independent poles are just standing up on their own. What happens is you start to become cohabitators of the same location, but emotionally disconnected. Because eventually you wake up, right? This woman, she shifted from five husbands to now she's living with a guy who's not. Why? Because after a while, you just kind of say, you know what, this is just not going to work. And you become jaded. And you shift to this H where you're just... Two independent people doing their thing in the same space. And I, I don't doubt that some of you have people in your life where you instantly, you thought of them when I said the letter H. And they're, they're, just, an, they're just an incident or an accident from a divorce. 
And it's tragic to sit around a couple who is living out a relationship that's like that. Because they're just roommates. There's no relationship. But see, what Jesus was pressing into her, of, instead of living life trying to have this whole filled, he's pressing into her a life that's meant to be whole. And I think that's the M framework. And that's where, if you look at the letter M, capital M, you've got two little pieces that can stand on their own, and yet they come together. And it's an interdependency. It's not a dependency. It's not an independency. It's an interdependency. There is a sense that I bring to this relationship. I am whole. I am complete. I step into this relationship giving all of who I am. It's 100%. But it's a healthy 100%. I know that I can't satisfy and fulfill and complete you. But I can complement you. And together we can become better. And together our relationship can become stronger. But there's not an over-dependency. There's not an over-reliancy. There's not an expectation that that one person is going to satisfy all your relational needs. You still need friends. You still need other people in your life. And that's what this M framework does. This interdependency that's just healthy. Because it comes from a place of wholeness. Not a place of trying to have a whole feel. And in those relationships, joys get multiplied and sorrows get divided. Grief has a partner to walk through it with. And you can still be you. And they can still be them. But what happens is that both of you are working on the we together. And you're not creating some system that you think is an ATM machine to fulfill you and to make you happy. And this is where Jesus holds up. And this is the thing. This isn't just marriage. This is relationships in general. Some of you probably have friends who are A's. Right? Who just show up in their life and they're just trying to cash out of your emotional well-being. I need you to make me feel better. I need you to make me feel whole. And they want, they want you to pour out into them. But they've never poured into you. Because it's possible not just to do marriage this way, relationships this way. Because they're living from a place of brokenness where there's a hole. And for those who want to press into it a little bit more, because there's so much content next week, I'm excited. We're going to like press into love and 1 Corinthians 13. But this book was written primarily for couples going through kind of premarital counseling. But this book is, is golden. You may not agree with everything in there, and that's okay. But there's some really good pieces of advice in this thing that just talks about what does it look like to have this relationship that's interdependent because there's so many things that you can do to practice it. But I wanted to make sure that today we, we became aware that it was possible to have it first. And now that you're aware that you can have it, this is a great book. It's called Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. It's written by Dr. Les and Leslie Parrott. They've been around for a while. They're kind of famous on a lot of those um, couple circuits because in Dali days, those exist. Um, and, and they've been really helpful. And there's a, a pre-assessment. If you're in the test and you're like, hey, I want to work on our relationship. Let's take this test together. They, they've got one of those, and that'll be great. Knock yourself out. Um, it takes about 35 minutes to do it, but it's going to press into all the various aspects of your life. 
And it's going to challenge you to become better instead of trying to make the other person become better because that's what often happens when you fall into that A-frame. My life would be better if you were better. Instead of, I have a responsibility to become better for this relationship to become better. And then kind of the wrapping up, what's so fascinating about the story, and there's so much in it that I wanted to spend time unpacking, but here's what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to release a podcast later this week because this, this is like rarely ever have, I, actually I don't think I've ever had a message where I was like, there is like a, a part two to this thing that's like a to be continued. And so middle of the week, I'm going to release the to be continued. And here's what I'm going to press into in the middle of the week just to kind of make you aware that it's going to be there, is that this woman shows up, but she leaves. Let me just read how she leaves. Verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I have ever done. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. This woman shows up at the well trying to avoid every single person in town because of the shame and the guilt that has plagued her life, because of the hole that is kind of completely in the center of her life. And what does she do after a conversation with Jesus? She runs to the very people she's been avoiding. She tells them the very things that she'd been trying to hide. This woman who came thinking that Jesus was offering escape discovered that Jesus could offer freedom. And then that freedom, that freedom is what he holds out for all of us. And I wish I had the time to press into everything I want to say, and that's why I'm going to make it a separate podcast. And it'll be a shorter podcast, but to keep your eyes open, because here's, I want to talk to a few of you who understand maybe your whole's not relationship, your whole's job, your whole's title, your whole is a salary, your whole's a house, your whole is the expectations and the accomplishment of your children. Your whole is alcohol or drugs. Your whole is the serial affairs that you've been involved in. You've got some hole in your life and you keep going through the motions and it's not filling you. And if that's you, if you can connect with that, then in the middle of the week, check the podcast. And what you're going to find there is going to be a separate message called Hole in Her Soul because that's what she left with that day. She left whole in her soul. And it happened with a step, with her realizing that Jesus was far more than just a sir. He was a savior. And that that shift of sir, 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 she calls him that throughout the entire time. At the end, she calls him the Messiah, the savior. And that that is the turning point that opens and sets her free. So I look forward to engaging with you middle of the week, us pressing into this a little bit. But today what I want to do as we kind of close out is just to leave you with this simple statement of what happy couples already know. Is that happy couples know that relationships can end up in weird places, but that the best relationships don't complete me, they complement me. Let's pray.